Welcome to Mihinte on Air on 100.5 and 790 News Radio WSGW and online WSGW.com. Now, here is your host, Larry Rodarte. Good evening. Welcome to Mihinte on Air, an innovative program that speaks from the Latino perspective in our Great Lakes Bay region. What makes a community great is its diversity, and I believe its immigrants that bring uh, fresh ideas, a new pool of culture, and plucked up roots to a community that make it unique. Not all believe this, but hey, that's what makes our country so great, right? The freedom to express ourselves, even when we may differ from many others. And on today's show, I want to give homage to a man who I respected for many years. His name was Daniel Sosa Jr., I respected him because he was someone who walked the walk and was involved in community engagement. Dan was a city councilman in Saginaw for many years, and he was always pushing education. He respected the plight of the indigenous Indians, including his love for history of those in Mexico, always pushing the Chicano mantra. Dan lived quite a life and left us a legacy to be involved in our communities to help make a difference. Let's listen to some audio from when Daniel Sosa Jr. received the Adelante Education Award from La Unión Cívica Mexicana in 2012. Desde lo más profundo de mi corazón, en agradecimiento a los que me dieron la vida. Mi casa y a mis padres tan queridos. Daniel Sosa Jr. sees the world and humanity much like his parents, non-judgmental and with tolerance. There's an old saying, you can't hit a home run unless you step up to the plate. And this man, in his dedication to social justice and education, has done just that. I remember since I was six, seven years old, always um, being, you know, with my dad, seeing him involved with the women of the world, the Unión Cívica Mexicana, uh, Cesar Chavez, um, forming the uh, Mexican American Softball League. So he was always involved with um, with this, and I, and I saw that. Like his father, Sosa Jr. says, you have to dig deep down when facing challenges. And like his hero, Cesar Chavez. He exemplifies his famous quote, We cannot seek achievement for ourselves and forget about progress and prosperity for our community. That was the late Daniel Sosa Jr. who passed in 2014. And today, as we give homage to this man, I have his son with us, Daniel Sosa III, who also is a community activist and is refugee capacity builder with Samaritas here in Saginaw. Welcome to Mi Gente on Air, Dan. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. What what makes you, how do you, how do you feel when you hear that that voice of your father after all these years? Mm, well, you know, it gives you the tingles, you know, because you don't, I have audio, but, you know, it's just, when you hear it like that, it just, you know, reminds you of the voice and, you know, yeah, it's um, heartwarming. It's 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 funny 
not funny, but kind of um, amazing to me that, you know, it, it seems like Dan was just here. I, f- I feel like he's been a, still a part of this community, yet it's been almost seven, eight years now since he passed. And, you know, he was so active in the city council with Saginaw. You'd see him every Monday there at uh, City Hall. And here it's been eight years, seven years in you know, since we lost them. So it's, it's kind of, to me, makes you realize how many years have actually gone by and how quickly, wouldn't you say? Yeah, time flies. You know, it feels like the older I get, the rest of the years go by. But yeah, it does. It does some, well, I'll say this. Sometimes it feels like yesterday. Sometimes it's been, feels like a long time, I guess. Yeah. But for the most part, yeah, I feel like it, it, it was like yesterday. Well, as his son, Daniel Sosa the third. What would you say is, from your perspective, your father's legacy? Yeah, you know, I would say it's education. Um, you know, he really believed in the power of education. He was involved in a wide range of issues, movements, um, you know, activist-type activities. But it was always education that I think that he knew he was well-suited for. It just fit his personality. You know, he always worked in educational, higher educational institutions. Um, you know, his his last job before he retired was working with the camp program mm-hmm. at MSU, which brings migrant students in right. um, from around the country to, to go to MSU. Um, it's an amazing program, and, you know, I think he was probably at his hap- happiest professionally working, um, working that job and working with those youth and, I still run into some of them to this day when I go back to MSU every year for homecoming that tell me, you know, stories about, um, about the trips that they took with them. I had one young man tell me that he really taught him how to be a man because he didn't grow up with a father. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you realize that impact, you know, whether it was, edu- it was educating people by tutoring them, by helping them navigate their way through higher ed, or just teaching them about life, it was, he was always... I'm involved in some way in education. Yeah, well, when as I'm hearing you talk about this, I remember back in 2012 when he received the Adelante Award from the Civica, it was Je- Jenny Tanny, one of his students at MSU, that actually nominated him. And she was oh. a part, she's from Saginaw, she's part of the Civica, and she said, what about Dan Sosa? And um, he, we were on agreement, yes, it was time, you know, that uh, he received that honor because he was also president of the Union Civica back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of ties. But tell me a story, if you can, about how your dad influenced you and what you do today as a community activist. Yeah, that's an easy question because I've to- I tell the story all the time. Um, you know, we all have our earliest memories of childhood, right? Like, what's your first memory of childhood? My first memory in childhood was um, spring, summer, every year. But I remember the first year, I want to say I was like four or five years old. Um, we would drive around, just me and my dad, to all the greenhouses in Saginaw County, every single one of them, and get donations of plants. And we would take these plants and we would make gardens um, at senior citizens' homes. And, you know, if, if there was a passion, you know, my dad had a lot of passions in life, and gardening and fruits and vegetables was definitely one of them. So he, um, you know, he just loved doing that sort of thing. And... One of the times that, you know, we were out there, there was uh, somebody from the Saginaw News, and they took a picture, and the picture was in the paper. 
And I just remember thinking at five years old how cool a thing that was to see my dad in the paper and, you know, him doing um, what he loved to do. You know, I mean, he planted hundreds of gardens, but I, for some reason uh, that day someone was there to take a picture. Wow. But we would, we would do it every weekend, you know, and it was just a blast just to um, spend time with my dad was, was great. But, you know, it was a lot of fun, and, you know, you, I learned at a really young age that it just feels good to help people. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, part of um, what I know is in the history of Daniel Sosa Jr. in his lifetime, he was really involved in the Chicano movement, especially mm -hmm. at Michigan State University. I want to play um, a second clip from the audio so that we can uh, get a little bit of background. Then I'm going to ask you, what would what would what your dad say in regard to the Chicano movement? Dan would graduate from St. Joseph High School in 1966 and then attend Michigan State University. It was there that his activism really kicked in. He was instrumental in organizing a Chicano student group at MSU called Mexican Americans at State, MAS, to begin advocating for Chicano student recruitment. This group would eventually become Mecha, and they were involved in sit-ins protesting the administration. There were sit-ins for the Vietnam War, for equality. Uh, my dad had brought Cesar Chavez to Saginaw uh, a number of times. Um, they picketed together the old stories. Cesar Chavez taught everyone how to talk with the owners. You know, Cesar Chavez was a non-violent man. That's when I became aware of who Cesar Chavez was. And that, uh, that played a significant role in my life. Chavez left a huge impression on the young Sosa. His quest for social justice for the underserved and for minorities led him to found the Michigan Brown Berets in 1969. They served as bodyguards for Chavez during his visits to launch the boycott La Causa in Michigan. They were on the watch for injustices and police brutality. Dan went from activist to mentor to teacher within the education realm. He would counsel students and teach at his alma maters at Delta College and eventually MSU. And of course, all the while pushing education with his children, Tanya, Inez, and Danielle. So would you tell me what you remember about what your dad said, first of all, about the Chicano movement, and then we're going to talk a little bit about um, Cesar Chavez coming to Saginaw. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, that was my childhood, is growing up hearing these stories. So, I mean, I've got hundreds of stories, <laughs> you know, about it in general, you know, but I think that, you know, one of the things that always struck me was that how few Latinos, Chicanos, there were at MSU when he went there. There was only, like, Oh my God! What did what did he say? Like four or five, you know, that he knew of when he first started there, and like two or three were from Saginaw. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and so, to, but to see what they built there, they laid a foundation for, and then you know what came along later in the '90s with the activism. I mean, it was the foundation to to what you have now. I mean, go to the south end of campus where like Holden Hall and the camp program are. I mean, every time I go there, I hear somebody 
you know, bumping reggaeton or Mexican music. It's like Little Mexico for them. You know, there's so many brown faces and people. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of what I remember from some of his stories. But, I mean, he told me some very, you know, tough things that were, I guess, tough to hear. Um, you know, especially, you know, as a kid kind of growing up, because it's like, wow, your dad, you know, faced a lot of danger when um, when he was an activist because, you know, the, the 60s were a turbulent time, right? And he um, told me some stories about the riots that ha- happened at MSU. You know, there was quite a few riots. Yeah. Uh, one in particular that was really bad, I think it's, I want to say I heard the way it started was the Oakland police, who the Black Panthers were obviously dealing with at the time, had come to MSU to recruit police officers and people were protesting. And some of the more radical groups that you hear about from that time period, like the Weathermen, yeah. they were a very radical student group. You know, and there's even some bombings that were attributed to um, some of the people in that group. And they, um, you know, they, the protests became violent. You know, you had police, National Guard beating people up. He, um, he told me one story in particular. Um, you know, one person that I never met was one of his best friends. I've heard stories about him. His name was Fallein, no, Forlan, Forlan Torres. And he was like a um, wrestler in high school, really well-built guy, really strong. And he said they were at, they were in the riots, you know, and they were walking down Grand River, you know, the main street in town. And the National Guard was lined up and down the street. And he passed the National Guardman, Guardsman, and the guard went to go hit him with a baton stick, um, you know, in the back of the head. But his friend Foylan saw him. And Foylan was really strong, and he grabbed the baton and caught it in midair hmm. and kept kept it from hitting my dad. And he just um, he always spoke, spoke really fondly of Foylan because he always remembered you know, him putting himself at risk to, to help him. Um, he also remembers the... He also told me stories about how um, the police, um, he saw them chasing down some of the weathermen activists and... Of course, all the, you know, things that go on in a riot, you know, windows breaking, um, him going to go get my mom from work. She worked on campus at the time. Just some, um, you know, that, that time was so violent. You know, it, I think it took a lot of heart, a lot of courage to, uh, to stand up to the inequality that was going on. I and mean, it laid the foundation for a lot of the things, a lot of the activism and change that you see now. Yeah. Not that we don't have a long way to go. But you know, it showed it showed people that you could stand up. Yeah. You could make a difference, but you had to be willing to put yourself at risk and and be out there. And I think that's what I what I meant by when I said he stepped up to the plate. Not only community activism, but also you know in the in the protest to make uh, change um, for injustices that were happening. And you know, your dad was there in the I think the late '60s, and um, I was there in the early '80s. And it's funny that you said that there was only maybe a handful of Chicano, what they called themselves, Chicano students at MSU during the, mature, um, you know, the, the protests and um, everything else that went on with the administration. And I remember when I was there in the 80s, I was probably one of 48 uh, Latino students on MSU campus at that time. 
out of a student body of 48,000. So it mm-hmm. really it really shows how you know we've come you know we've come a long way we, we're growing and we're continually growing and um, I think Dan and Rosa Morales, Juan Marines, uh, Diana Rivera, all those names stand out in my mind because they led you know that foundation to make change for Latino students on campus. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, they definitely did. I, I got to give a shout out too to one of my uh, administrators that was there, uh, Luis Garcia. Oh yeah, he's uh, yeah, you know, he's the one that started the camp program, and he was the Latino administrator for years, and he really, um, he really took took it upon himself to bring a lot more of our people there, and I think you know he was he was very instrumental in, in increasing the numbers. Yeah, and he was there when I was there in the early eighties. Yeah, uh, that's when he started. I remember him, at, you know, uh, very young. I was very young, and He's still there. So kudos to Luis for, uh, you know, like you say, that mm-hmm. recruitment of la- Latino students at Michigan State University. Um, you know, we talk all about that history, you know, and the Chicano movement and all. What do you think your dad would say about the Latinx term that has become so popular in describing Latinos today? Yeah, you know, Latinx kind of came out of left field to me. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we talked about the word Chicano, Latino, Hispanic a lot. And, you know, the, when it comes down to it, in, in his mind and in my mind, we, we came to the understanding that both the terms Latino and Hispanic are, are technically incorrect, right? Latino was a term that originally meant Europeans born in what's now Latin America. Hispanics are literally from Spain. So both terms don't really describe us. I think we both had the view of ourselves. He did, I did as a native people and indigenous people. Mm -hmm. But then what do you call yourself? You know, because, you know, words change, the meaning of words change. I think when you, I think nowadays when you say the word Hispanic or Latino, the, you get a different image in your mind than what the original meaning is. Right. The language, language is like that, you know, words, the meaning of words change. And right now I think it's kind of just a term. Those terms is kind of applied to, um, all people of Latin American descent regardless of what country you're from and regardless of the words being incorrect. It's a shame that maybe we haven't come up with a better word. (laughs) Um, So I don't know, you know, a lot of that, um, a lot of that um, discussion about things like gender weren't really happening when he was around, you know, he was very much a feminist. He believed in the women's fire movement. Um, But he, you know, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if he would have, I don't think he would have liked it any more than any of those other terms. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard term to, to come to grips with because, you know, how much effect does it have on our own identity? Yeah. And you know, you know, as, as publisher of Mi Gente, so, you know, 26 years ago when we started, it was difficult um, to classify ourselves even then, because I know that even the term Hispanic, which, you know, came around in the eighties, I believe, the early '80s, uh, it was it was brought upon by the Census Bureau um, right. to to actually uh, pigeonhole Latinos into a category, if you will, and a lot of Latinos, if you will, or Mexicanos or people who speak Spanish didn't like the term at all. They still don't like the term, and some are saying, you know, his panic, his panic, who's panic, 
and yeah. they're referring to the white man's panic, his panic. And so it's, you know, it's, it's really a touchy subject in some, and I know your dad way back, um, you know, he, I remember a phone call with him and him telling me, don't use that word, you know, Latino or Hispanic in the, yeah. in the magazine. And I think I, I even had that with you early on when I first met you. So, I mean, it, it really meant something to him, it, you know, and, I said, okay, well, what do we call ourselves? And, you know, well, where are we from? You know, we're Americans. Right? Yeah. We're, we're Americans, but we're of Mexicano descent. And so it's still to this day something that we're dealing with because, the you know, the Latinx term, although it encompasses, it's supposed to encompass all people uh, that, you know, are, are from the Latin American countries, um, I think it, it, it does that to some, for some, and for others it doesn't. So it's just... We're, yeah. we're, we're still in the game of, of trying to figure out who we are, right? But we know right. who we are. And I just want to ask you um, real quickly, what do you re- before we go into break, what do you remember of your dad's involvement with Sasa Chavez, the great labor leader, or even your grandfather, Daniel Sosa Sr.? Right. So my earliest mem- uh, memories of the UFW and Sister Chavez um, was when um, – the boycott started again, the great boycott started again in the 80s, and a lot of the rhetoric that the UFW was putting out was in regards to pesticides. Yeah. Right? Because in the 60s and 70s, a lot of very dangerous chemicals that were being used were banned. And then in the 80s, you had all these, like, cancer clusters, um, you know, that, that the UFW was really pushing. And then, you know, of course... You know, they had made a lot of progress in terms of the, you know, the, the treatment of farm workers. But then you had all this, um, these problems with the chemicals, which, you know, they, they really never got very far on because you can't argue science in today's world, it seems like. And, you know, it, it, I, you know I got to meet Chavez a couple of times, you know, and there's still a lot of support. So, you know, I had conversation with my dad, you know, like, tell me more about, you know, about who he was to you. And so the movement that he experienced with Chavez was different, obviously. Um, you know, he talked really highly about the march. People, you know, I don't know if your listeners know that, but Professor Chavez came to Saginaw and there was a march between Saginaw and Bay City um, where people in support of the UFW marched. They walked, I think it was all the way down River Road, mm-hmm. all the way to Bay City. Um, and then, you know, he was involved in another number of marches with him. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because my, my grandfather, the same thing, he was a huge supporter of Chavez. You know, we didn't eat grapes, you know, in their ho- in the house growing up. And he was really, that was definitely one of the things that he got from his dad. Yeah. Was that support of Chavez. And I think that, you know, you, nobody can argue that in terms of leadership, I mean, Chavez was the one who sacrificed so much of his life, um, so much of himself to be a leader. You know, he really lived it. I mean, the 30-day fast, yeah. the constant marching. Um, and, I mean, it was a great experience for me. I got to meet Sister Chavez twice. Wow, that's um, awesome. Yeah, in Lansing. And, um, you know, the story my dad told was that Chavez came um, to our house when he was in high school. Um to sit and have dinner with my grandparents. Well, well, let's uh, let's let's continue that after we come back from break. But I wanted okay. to say that I still feel guilty every time I eat a green grape. 
<laughs> you know, because Cesar Chavez yeah. said, do not buy those grapes because of those farm farmers that were how they treated the workers. So we'll be back right after commercial on Mi Gente On Air. This is Mijenta On Air on WSGW. Welcome back. We're here at WSGW, and we're talking with Daniel Sosa III, giving homage to his father, Daniel Sosa Jr. And right now we're talking about Cesar Chavez and his involvement with the labor leader. And I remember that great boycott back in the late 60s, and I remember how much Bobby Kennedy, the candidate who was running for president, was you know involved and supported the movement La Causa with Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta. And, you know, I, it makes me think what you said, Dan, you know, in, in regards to, you know, that famous scene with Bobby Kennedy where he's taking on the farm workers um, because, like I said, he supported the, the movement and he, you know, questioned whether or not they read the Constitution. What do you remember about that? Right, you know, I, I remember seeing the footage, the actual black and white footage of that whole hearing, and, you know, what just struck me was that it's so clearly unethical, unlawful what was going on. They were literally arresting people. Um, the sheriff said he, was, he arrested them in anticipation of them committing a crime, and that's really what set Bobby Kennedy off mm-hmm. um, and make him make that statement. He said during the, when we go on break, I, I um, suggest the sheriff of Delano County read the U.S. Constitution. Um, and, you know, it was just so striking to hear him say that when I first saw it and then realize the weight that it carried. That's what really um, kind of helped bring the cause into a national spotlight, right? You know, everybody around the country began to talk about it, you know, because he was Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. And it wasn't just, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and um, the other people that were involved. It was, you know, the future possible president of the United States, or the former attorney general. Yeah, you know, so, it, ma- it makes you really wonder, you know, had Bobby Kennedy lived and become president, how would he have handled the whole plight of the uh, the migrant workers, the American migrant workers, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, it does. You know, he... Um, he was very involved at that, you know, on, on the, um, on the campaign trail, you know, if you ever view the footage of when he died, Dolores Huerta was standing beside him when he was shot, you know, she was there that day. Um, she was interviewed by the FBI and, um, I've seen her comment in documentaries about what happened, but they were that close. And she was really the one who pushed to get him involved and to really bring his attention to what was going on because she knew, um, the weight that it would carry if he did support them. 
Yeah, a Kennedy. Yeah. And, 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 you know, we have had the immigration problem throughout, you know, all these years here in the United States. And, and, and again, had Bobby Kennedy lived, you know, where would that immigration issue have been? I think he would have had more empathy than those that actually served um, through the years as president. But that brings me to the, the border uh, crisis that we have currently here in the United States. And I, and I bring this up, you know, even though we're giving homage to your dad, because you're involved quite a bit. You've stepped up to the plate and you're involved in your capacity job at Samaritas. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so professionally I work um, in refugee um, care, so um, refugee foster care. So what we do is what I do is help recruit people to be foster parents um, for refugees. There's only about five programs, five agencies in the entire state, and less than 50 around the country that are involved with this. But the youth who come to the country unaccompanied, um, say from the Middle East, Africa, um, they come to a refugee camp with a visa to come here, those are considered unaccompanied refugee minors. Um, There's also another category the U.S. government uses, and that's unaccompanied children. And those are the children that they classify or they classify them under this when they come to the border and are apprehended by Border Patrol or Homeland Security. Um, so they have a different label for them because they're coming here without a visa. But if they're, um, you know, they, they have to go through the Office of Refugee Resettlement, but if their case is deemed possibly worthy of being a refugee, they move forward in the process, and then we can actually find them a home here in the U.S. while they're dealing with immigration court applying for their green card and that sort of thing. So it's actually one of the ways you can get a child who is um, in a cage, because we've all seen images of them um, in cages. You know, this is one of the ways you can actually help getting get them out of the cage. So in your job capacity, you're actually dealing directly with these immigrant children down in the, at the Texan border and they're bringing some of them up here into the state of Michigan under foster care, huh? Yep, yep. It's actually, um, there is um, a number of programs. So we have programs for youth who are um, younger age that are only in the short terms, meaning that they're going to stay with a family for like 30 to 45 days. Um, There's also programs for youth who are not, well, well, let me go back. The kids that are in the program for only 30, 45 days, they're going to be reunited with a, a sponsor or a family member. But there are kids who come that need a family to stay with until they're 18. So we have those programs. We have programs for after they turn 18. Um, and there's also a number of facilities around um, the state um, that we operate to house these youth. Mm-hmm. So another part of my job, which is very exciting, um, is when we have a youth in one of our facilities um, that needs to be reunited in Texas. I've kind of called the state of Texas for myself so I can visit family when I go there. Um, but anytime a kid needs to be reunited in Texas, um, I get to be the one that um, takes them there. So I had my first experience at the end of last year um, where I took a kid from Guatemala, from Grand Rapids, which is where the facility is, to Houston. Uh, and he was reunited with a sponsor who had actually, I guess, taken one of his siblings, mm-hmm. um, and that sponsor will help him um, 
keep his immigration case going and that sort of thing and take care of him. Well, you know, that's a topic that we could be talking a whole show on because, yeah. you know, it's so relevant today. Um, but we got to remember we're giving homage to your dad. And I think, though, that he would be very proud of you knowing the work that you're doing in helping these immigrants, you know, across the country. So thank you for your work. And, you know, I, I we talked about Bobby Kennedy there, there for a moment. And your grandfather, Daniel Sosa Sr., he was really involved in the community as well. And I know this, especially with La Unión Cívica Mexicana as its president at one time. And, and you're involved. Your dad was involved. What is this, a Kennedy dynasty here in Saginaw? <laughs> you know? Well, that's very flattering that you say that. Um, you know, I mean, you would think kind of growing up and seeing those things that it, it's, um, being involved in things just comes naturally um, because you see it your whole life. But to me, it was more so when we would do those kind of things, when we'd be involved in things, um, you know, they, they really made it to the point, especially my dad, you know, to say, you know, why, you know, why are you doing this? He wasn't just, you know, dragging me along. There was always an explanation and a story. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just the action itself. You know, it wasn't just planting gardens, you know, it was, this is why we're planting gardens, you know, and sometimes the answer or the story was as simple as, you know, it, it really feels good to help people. You know, you, um, when you help people, you do it because you can. Um, and, um, and that, that was, that was the motivation behind it. Just, just to be able to do that. Um, well, how do, how do we today, Dan, because you and I are both out there uh, fighting the good fight, you know, and Dan and I were just recently um, involved with um, the lieutenant governor in a meeting, and there was a number of different Latinos throughout the uh, state of Michigan, and we're looking to collaborate more so that the Latino voice is heard on that level in the state of Michigan. But how do we encourage young people today to get involved more with making things happen for their community? I think we need to have a tough conversation with some of the young people and let them know, you know, when these issues come up, we know they affect you. I mean, I, you know, you probably have family that are affected by immigration in some way. You have probably, you or your family have probably been affected by inequality in some way. And there's consequences to not having your voice heard. You know, you know, that consequence may be, well, your voice isn't heard, but the consequence could also be that, something doesn't happen positive some uh, progress doesn't get made because you weren't involved and I think that a lot of our young people feel um, unempowered disempowered because they see what's going on in the country they see how in some ways our people are being blamed for every problem that America suffers you know somehow we're the cause of it um, and they feel less than because of the color of their skin they feel um, they feel the other, even though some of us have been here for, what, four generations? Um, not just in America, in Michigan. Yeah. You know, my, my family has four generations born in Michigan because I have cousins that are grandparents now. Yeah. You know, my parents were born in Michigan, me, my children, and, you know, so, you know, this perpetual immigrant story, I mean, it's, sure there's a lot of, you know, immigrants that need our help, but we also can't forget to tell that story, too. And that kind of goes back to the whole identity thing. I think a lot of our young people 
are struggling with that whole part of their identity. They're struggling with what they see in the media, and they don't feel like that their help is needed, that their voice isn't needed, but it really is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and as stewards of those of us that are, you know, like I said, fighting the good fight, we have to encourage that involvement. But it doesn't mean involvement that is not right. I'm talking the good fight, you know, fighting in a, in a just way for, uh, you know, against injustice. But it doesn't mean, you know, to to vandalize or to go out and, and, and cause um, havoc just because you're trying, you think you're putting on a good fight. It means having the responsibility to do what's right and what is humane and what is responsible. So that that's something that is, is important. And, and we have just seen the gamut in 2020 in regard to behaviors. And I know that I remember your dad. Um, we, we had issues at the Union Civica Mexicana. And I just, I remember him uh, being the president because they elected him in to the presidency so that he could quell some of the infighting that was going on because you get that in every organization and Dan, sure. Dan handled that so well. And I remember that I'm talking about 1996, 97. And yeah. he, he then went on right after that. I remember he went on to um, start his tenure with the Saginaw city council. And so, you know, he, he really, he really worked hard for this community, for the Saginaw, for the city of Saginaw. And, and that's why we're giving him that homage. I, I want to play one more uh, audio clip from the Adelante Award when he w- he won that award in 2012. And you'll hear a little bit about what his involvement, the significance of Daniel Sosa in, with the Saginaw City Council. When I first started my college career at Delta College, I was fortunate enough to meet Dan Sosa. He took a great interest in all of his students, and at one point I actually had decided to drop out because of transportation issues. Well, I'll be darned if Dan wasn't there the next day picking me up at my house and telling me I got a ride for you. And he drove me back and forth all semester. And so I can't even imagine what my life would be um, at this point if Dan hadn't stepped in and intervened. I'm not unique. I'm sure that there's hundreds of students who have had the same experience with Dan and who were fortunate enough enough to have him in his life. He served as a mentor to me from that day forward. So I want to say congratulations, Dan, and no one is more deserving than you of this award. And I'm so proud to say you're my friend. Congratulations. His public service intensified with a run for political office in 1993. Dan ran for Saginaw City Councilman and was the second top vote getter to become the first Latino elected councilman in the city's history. He would serve until 2005. There were a lot of challenges for the city in terms of their budget. And I don't know if you realize it, but we, the city runs a hundred million dollar a year budget. You know, in over 12 years, that was a lot of budget. Activist, counselor, teacher, leader. Daniel G. Sosa has worn all these hats. And today, he advocates a simple principle that came from his parents to support each other. He has stepped up to the plate and has hit a home run. Wow, that was 2012, almost 10 years now, Dan. Can you? Mm-hmm. That was such a special night to, to have your, your dad there. 
at the Dow Event Center, giving him that award. And then I believe shortly after, within two years, um, he passed away. So I'm so glad we had that opportunity to honor him in that way. What do you remember about that night? Oh, I just remember how packed it is. Um, you know, I've, I've gone to a few of the awards shows now, and you know, I think it really hit me at the last one because um, didn't, that didn't hit me that night. Is just how much of the Saginaw um, Chicano Latino history that you're preserving um, through these shows, you know. And award shows are great. Obviously, everybody likes to get an award, um, but I think you know, kind of in retrospect, it's like, wow, you know, we are actually preserving that part of our history um, through you know with what you're doing. Um, but I mean, I remember just it just being a fun night, you know. And I was. Um, you know, our whole family was there, fortunately, and, um, you know, it's just always, it's always a great event. Yeah. So if your listeners haven't been to one, I encourage you to go. <laughs> well, thank you for those comments, and I think that with these uh, shows that we're doing where we're incorporating some of that information from the Adelante Awards of the past, because we ran those awards for 10 years prior to the, the pandemic, and hopefully um, in the future we'll continue with those, but... It's nice that WSGW has afforded us the opportunity to do Mi Gente on Air so that we can tell our stories uh, from the Adelante Awards or to current events and, and just the concerns that we have as a part of this community. So it's, it's really a blessing for all of us, and I hope that everyone out there in the listening audience will continue to support Mi Gente on Air, whether it's listening on a Sunday night at 8 p.m. when we air or on the podcast that are on Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music, because that's it. That's our voice. That's what we contribute to the community. And there's so many that have gone before us now that had contributed, had laid the foundation to what our community is today, and especially our younger people. If they if they could know the history a little bit more, I think that it could lead them on, on better paths in some instances. So... Thank you for being with us today, Daniel Sosa the third. I have to say the third because we gotta remember your dad was a junior. And yeah. and and Daniel Sosa Senior, like I said, he was involved very much so in what I would say uh some of the heyday of the Union Civica Mexicana as its president. But he was involved mm-hmm. a lot as well. Can you tell me a little bit about what you remember of your grandfather? Well, I remember um as a kid that we were at Civic Hall at the time. It felt like, um, but it was very, you know, a lot of my very younger years. Um, but the memories I have of my grandfather was the, um, uh, softball league. I don't know if you remember that, um, very much, but oh, he was yeah. very involved. Yeah. And the softball league that played at Hoy Park and it was like an all Latino softball league, you know, and everybody in Saginaw was there when they were playing. That's what I, I really have a lot of fond memories of that being the ball boy for my grandpa's team. Um, his team was Los Amigos. Oh, yeah. Um, and my actually, my uncle's from Lansing. I had a bunch of uncles in Lansing, and they would come and play um, against um, in that le- against the Saginaw teams in that league. So um, that was that was where I felt like we were at the most. We were always at the Hoy Park. Yeah. Um, and then um, when I got a little bit older, um, he, I remember him being a crossing guard. Um, he was a crossing guard for the schools, and he also drove the bus for the Audra Francis Senior Center that was right downtown. Um, 
the one uh, the one building that's uh, like right right by Zion Church there. Oh yeah. Yeah. Then I think MESC took it over. Then it became something else, and it's been a few different things. But um, he used to spend a lot of time there as well. Well, you know, he he was a giant. I know um, Mamie Antiveros talked about him very fondly and his involvement, and she was involved with the Sosa family, with Mario and your dad, my, you know, brothers who she showed me old pictures uh, back in the day when you, your grandfather and grandmother settled here in Saginaw and their involvement, again, like I said, with the Civica. So there, there's a lot of history with the Sosa family, and I'm glad to see that you're continuing that on to advocate for our community and, you know, be a, a good steward in helping uh, some of the immigrants as well. And I can't say enough um, about the history that your family has partaked in this community. And I, I'm, I'm aware of it. I know of it. And I just want to thank you for being on the show today with us. Any last words, Daniel Sosa the third? Oh, um, if you haven't been vaccinated, get out there and get vaccinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, that's true. And uh, and we've been advocating for the vaccine on this program since it started. And I couldn't wait to get my vaccine as soon as I could um, because I just, I believe in it. And no offense to anybody else out there. We all have our opinions, but we've got to do our part to help our community. So there you have it, our homage to the man, Daniel Sosa Jr., as we talk with his son, Daniel Sosa III. He was a hero in the Hispanic community of Saginaw and an activist in Saginaw as a city councilman as well. And, and I mentioned earlier, I, I remember him as president of the Civica in the 90s when there, you know, there was that big division within the group at that time. And they elected Dan to quell some of the tensions. And there's always tensions from different fractions in whatever organization, you know, we're dealing with. And we, we sure have them now in our country, don't we? Conservatism or versus liberals and, and race relations. And, you know, I, I want to end my show by saying this. A few months before Daniel Sosa Jr. passed away, I saw him at the Dow Event Center at some function. It might have been even another Adelante Award Um you know, in 2013, but he stopped me and he, he said he was aware of some of the turmoil concerning my own community involvement. And he looked me right in the eye and he said, Larry, just keep doing what you've been doing. Don't give up. I never forgot that. And so my words today, keep pushing people, fight the good fight. And until next time, I really want to make sure that we remember the giants in our community, people like Jimmy Fulgencio, Daniel Sosa Jr., Mamie Antiveros, because they really, you know, were the giants that we stand on their shoulders. And as a people, we are continually growing second, third, fourth, fifth generation Latinos here in the city of Saginaw. And we're part of, of this great diversity that makes our community so wonderful. And I'm big on that. I've always said that diversity is what makes a community great, and I believe that wholeheartedly. So, again, keep pushing, fight that good fight. Until next time, I am your host, Larry Rodarte, and we'll see you next time on Mi Gente On Air. <laughs>